Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling in association with Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. I'm Graham Wilgos. With me, of course, Bradley Wiggins. Hello. Brad, we're going to come on to stage 15 of the tour in just one second. First, I should mention uh, that we've done part two of... Uh, of how yellow changed my life, um, which will come no, as a, life the second, was never the same again. Second part of this podcast because we had such a big response to the first one. Yeah, I just I thought it was a really nice thing to carry on. We had such nice response to the first one. It'd be nice to do the second one and then maybe get a third one next week. Yeah, no, well, that's because life is ever changing. Life quite, is ever evolving. Quite right too. Um, so stage fifteen of the Tour de France to the summit of the Grand Colombier. The first time the race has finished a stage on this particular climb. A beautiful finish. Classic snaking switchbacks in the early evening light too. Made for a spectacular scene and quite the grandstand finish on the road, Brad. Yeah, I mean it was um, it was quite decimated at the end, wasn't it? But without huge time gaps, of course, to the to the main players. But Bernal, big loser today. It, again, it had everything in the stage. I think Jumbo Visma rode in the style of Sky Ineos of previous years. You know, they they that tempo they set up the last climb was quite something really. And in particular, Van Aert. You know, to see Van Aert at the front with Bernal going at the back, um, that guy's just going from strength to strength and does, never ceases to amaze me of his talent and what he's capable of in this sport over the next couple of years. Um, Kwiatowski was dropping back to the team car at one point, uh, well, sorry, to the doctor's car um, for some tablets of some sort or whatever. Not necessarily for him. So there may have been some discussions to whether Bernal, over the next couple of days, it comes out that he's got suffering from a sickness or something because that's quite a quite a rapid descend through the GC that in the last couple of days for Bernal. And I can only imagine that there's something up with him. I mean, that's that's the headline today, isn't it? The fact that Ineos or Team Sky, as as they were don't for the first time in a decade or they see, don't seem to for the first time in a decade have what it takes to win the Tour de France no. um, and, and going into it this year with the one leader strategy betting it all on Bernal if you like yeah. I mean they and he's eight minutes behind for he's a lost team eight minutes that's today. so normally gets it so right they've got it quite wrong this year haven't they mm. um, and I don't know why that is when you know comparing it to Jumbo Visma they've done everything right they haven't put a foot wrong this race um, you know we saw we actually saw um, an interview with Chris Froome with Orla on the breakaway today. and um, Which we will, in fact, bring to you on our yeah. West Day podcast. And uh, I think with tomorrow. every word that comes out of either Chris Froome or Garain's camp, um, it contradicts the statement they made before the tour about their non-inclusion to the team. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it begs the question, you know, Garain line third in Tirreno. I mean, Carapaz finished 27 minutes behind today. He's a shadow of himself, of the man of the Giro last year, although he came, he was a late entry into the race, of course. But you have to think that Geraint, as he is now, would be somewhere in the top 10. That that was probably clearly a mistake now that he didn't go to the Tour de France. Whose decision that was, we don't know at this stage, but um, 
they have got it quite horribly wrong, really, um, for a team that is so focused around the Tour de France and for all the planning that goes into it. But there are a lot of other factors in this race. It's the first year that they've not had Nico Portal mm. in the race. It's the first year they've not had Grind or Chris Froome at the race for a long time. And yeah, it's not it's not gone well for him. But a team it has gone well for is Jumbo, of course. And they look every bit like the Team Sky of the past or the Ineos of the past. So. Well, the resources in that yellow train were, were awesome and we saw that on the final climb with, as you say, Van Ertz drilling it at the front and then he handed off to, to Tom Dumoulin yeah. who is looking better and better. Um, and in fact, he's he's crept into the top 10 on GC today too. Yeah. And and they, they almost had Sepp Kuss there in reserve before the two Slovenians leading the race on GC um, went off the front. Before we come to that, here's how Colton Kirby called it for us on Eurosport. And here is Pogacar in the white jersey just determined, I think, to possibly impose himself send a message for the future perhaps and maybe even one for right now and Richie Port goes again brilliantly so by the Tasmanian he comes through Richie Port is going to be the man to be by the looks of things right now with 300 to go but Roglic doesn't panic stays there Miguel Angel Lopez in the, the blue is also here Talibur Kacha also in the frame this is magnificent Port pushes on 200 metres from the line Roglic on his case Pogaccia still thinking about it and so is Lopez it's between those quartet Richie Port dialing the clock back but the clock is going to work in the favour of Primoz Roglic overall and in fact he wants more than that he wants the bonus seconds as well and Teddy Pogacar is going to come for it as well he goes on the hornings he lights it up Pogacar hits the centre of the road his uh, friend and nemesis uh, Primoz Roglic alongside him bonus seconds up for grabs and this could be crucial by the end of this race it's Pogacar that takes the day but it is Roglic who takes an enormous step forward in his battle for yellow so Brad, Tade Pogacar taking his second win, second stage win of the Tour, coming in uh, just in front of Primoz Roglic. Both of them, again, looking enormously strong today with Richie Port coming in just five seconds behind on the day in third. Talk us through the finish. How did you see it? I mean, Primoz looked, he looked the freshest yeah. among the big hitters there, but Pogacar was almost hiding in the group. Yeah, and it was the, the roles were reversed from two days ago, really, weren't they? Because... Primoz looked the strongest on the finish two days ago. We saw Martinez won. And today, Pogacar actually distanced Primoz just a little bit. I actually thought Pogacar would probably fall away in this third week, but he's he's not looking like anything of the sort. And um, them two have just... I mean, I just, that that's going to come down to that time trial, I think, between them two for the win for the Tour. And I wouldn't necessarily say Primoz has got this wrapped up at this point. Mm. Um, the one who really impressed me today was Richie, Richie Port who's climbed back up into the top five or six now. And he's a, a, a chance, after all the years of bad luck and crashes, and we thought he's, maybe his chance is over in the Tour de France, to really get a podium place now. We really saw Jumbo Visma start to put the, the pace on in really that did. final 14 kilometres. As we've um, touched on already, they really had the numbers there, whereas Bernal, by comparison, only had Castroviejo and Kwiatkowski with him, and they could do little for him. He started to, to drop back, um, and they put, time in it, it between the between the Yumbo group and the Bernal group they put two minutes into him so yeah. so quickly I mean it was it was an awesome step on the accelerator really yeah and did you see who finished with Bernal today I, I did yeah I mean it was so do you think that was deliberate or did they say to him look if you can finish with Bernal well I don't know but so what, we're talking about Wout van Aert yeah here. I mean yeah. Pff, talk about make a statement I, I wouldn't be surprised if something come out about Bernal in the next few days in terms of an illness or a sickness he's been carrying but do you expect him to finish the tour who knows? Depends how bad it is. I mean, um, I can't see what, like, where does that leave them? I don't know what mm. stage wins. I mean, I'll, I don't know. It's, um, 
I can't see them fighting their way back into GC now. It's it's clearly over. There's not many stage wins left. Have how, which riders have got the legs to be up the front and good chasing stage wins? They they all seem to be on the back foot. Yeah. Um, I mean, would it be Carapaz? Would it be would it be um, Kwiatkowski? Well, to... Kwiatkowski looks looks the strongest of them all, and he looks like the Kwiatkowski of old, really, that we you come used to seeing. So. I would say it would be him, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but so Bernal, just to uh, put a time on it, is 13th on GC at 8 minutes and 25 seconds. So uh, a hell of a shake-up, not with the top two. Roglic took six bonus seconds today. Pogaccia, with the win, took 10 bonus seconds, which which puts him 40 seconds behind. Rigoberto Uran, um, Jonathan Vorters, I don't know if you saw him tweet yeah. afterwards. He said no heart rate monitor uh, for him, no power meter. He was riding old school on what JV described as the hurt rate monitor. Yeah. Um, he lost 18 seconds today, but is still third on GC at 1 minute 34. Miguel Angel Lopez, fourth. Adam Yates back up to fifth yeah. at two minutes and three so seconds, and he looked good today. Quite a shake-up, yeah. Around the old kind of the old veteran of it all, really. Um, Move, moving like Jagger. Yeah. I think there's so much more to come in this Tour de France, really. And Adam Yates, he's not done for him yet. A brilliant ride by him. And he, he punched off the front in the last seven kilometres, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him go. He didn't really get much of a gap, though, did he? And that was that furious tempo being set by um, Jumbo Visma. But they, they must still see him as a threat, because they, course, they work yeah. very, very yeah. hard to close that gap down very yeah. quickly. Uh, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, they're, they're just not, they're not taking anyone, they're not underestimating anyone in this tour. And I think that's that's clear in the way they're riding. Except, of course, it was a, there was a one point where I thought they were going to try and let him win. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that would have meant him taking bonus seconds instead of Roglic. Of course, um, yeah. So perhaps he was he was up there to see if he could take the yeah. uh, the, yeah. the, the second place bonus seconds. and, and Correct. They've been a dominant team, and you know I think when they hit that last time, they still had six riders riding on the front, yeah, which is um, quite something. And the one as well, Dumoulin climbed yeah. back into the top ten today, yeah, and that's that's a, a solid ride from him, isn't it? And yeah. probably sets him up nicely for next year. Was it? Um, do you find it painful to watch almost for Bernal because you really saw him suffering, trying to keep in contact yeah. and, and just losing more and more time? That's bike racing, isn't it? He he did go quite early on the climb. I mean, Van Aert was riding and he went out the back. So it shows you that there's something clearly not right there. And that's what makes me think that it leans towards uh, an illness of some description. Yeah. Um, Podcast Pete has just pointed out to me that it was Sepkus's birthday today, 26. Oh, Sepkus, happy birthday, man. <laughs> also with a birthday to celebrate today, Pippa York. Yes. Um, a word on Sergio Higuita, uh, who we saw earlier in the race, um, trying to get in the breakaway. And his Tour de France has ended in tears very, very quickly, swinging out, taking a look back to see how the break was developing, presumably, um, when Bob Youngles cut across him and yeah. took, out his, uh, took out his front wheel. Yeah. Um, so Higita went down hard, and he's, so he's had a scan. They, they suspect he's got a broken finger or a broken hand, and that meant that he, he, his braking um, yeah. powers were limited, and he, he crashed again shortly afterwards. That, and that second crash, we didn't see on camera. Right. Yeah, I mean, I thought Bob Yugos, it was a overexpressive, um, exaggerated swing out, almost mm. in frustration at the lack of work rate in the group. And in doing that, was just feared far too quickly on on Higita, and it wasn't intentional. I think he was trying to be a bit of a smart ass and actually ended up bringing him down. It'd probably been nice to see him sort of say sorry or something. <laughs> yeah, there was no hand up there, was there? Um, it, and I feel for agreed to, you know, because that's bike racing. Just you know, it could change in a heartbeat. And he was just looking round. He wasn't expecting him to to change so rapidly across a, 
Um, and we talk about them bunch sprints last week and stuff and, and the dangers and that. I mean, that was a dangerous move, not in a sprint finish, mm. but out on the road mm. that caused someone to break their wrist or a hand or something. Yeah. Um, and I think there should be some sort of, you know, he veered quite rapidly when he didn't need to do that. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite the now, sweep. If he'd done that in a finish straight, you know, and someone crashed, you'd have been relegated or chucked out the tour. Sure. I'm not saying we should chuck him out the tour, but this should be some, you know, it's not finding the guy or anything, but, you know, he needs a slap on the wrist of some description. Look, you know, just because the group isn't working doesn't mean you could go veering off exaggerated like throwing your toys out the pram and putting the end to some rider's race. Mm. Uh, another Colombian uh, who didn't have such a good day, Nairo Quintana. Uh, he's now at five, no, minutes, five minutes and eight seconds on yeah. GC. So he's he's Yeah, just it's a shame for Nairo, but I think he was paying the effects of that crash, wasn't it, a few days ago? Because mm. he was looking like really strong and I tipped him to do something this race the last week. But yeah, it's a shame because um, he clearly had good form. And it just shows you the tour, it's, it's so fragile and it's always one little crash like that, like with Bardet. And the race could be over for you. Higuita today, you know, it's just that could happen to any one of the big leaders, Primoz, all those guys. And when we saw it the other week with Podgar, didn't we, at the top of that hill where he was going for sprints and um, and Roglic, yeah, sweeped out. And in it front just of shows him. you like it's never over till it's over. Yeah, a lot comes down to luck there too. It yeah. was, uh, you know, the, the two Slovenians got lucky because they could have wiped each other out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and lost an awful lot of time. And and today, Sergio Higuita's got very, very unlucky. All right, thanks, Brad. We'll be back with more from the Bradley Wiggins Show right after this. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, for life on and off your bike. Lacquer has flipped outdated traditional insurance on its head with no more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your max monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the collective, fixing, replacing and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. And when things go bad, Lacquer's got your back. Claims are handled by experts and usually agreed within a day, with no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. Head over to www.lacquer.co, where new customers can get £10 credit by signing up today with the discount code WIGGINS. Welcome back to the Bradley Wiggins Show, sponsored by Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. Brad, a quick word on Treno Adriatico over in Italy, where Froome and Geraint Thomas are racing, as you mentioned earlier. Simon Yates remains top of the GC. Matthew van der Poel today with a sensational win, uh, rolling away on the last climb. Good to see him back after uh, well, yeah. and, and, and back in such form. Now that we're all focused on what's happening in the Tour... Uh, it's 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 almost a shame that such a, a prestigious bike race and such a big rider um, almost yeah, almost, almost went unnoticed. unnoticed. Um, but great, you know, I think we kind of the sports missed him really, haven't they? Um, yeah. It's been a long time since what was it Amstel last year where we saw him win that in spectacular style. And, but um, will, that, will that will that suit him just being able to kind of get on with it in a way? Well, I just think it shows he's back to. Um, because um, the last time we saw him, I think it was Lombardia, where he kind of just got dropped, which was very unlike him. And it's nice to see him back winning. And that bodes well for the classic season coming up, isn't it? Which mm. is Roubaix and all those races, because he's going to be a big part of that. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean, possibly him not having that same pressure that uh, he must have felt on his shoulders with his performances last year uh, would have um, would have done him some good. 
on that, Brad, we had a, a huge response to you reflecting on your career and how winning yellow changed your life yeah. when we spoke um, on the pod last week. So much so that we picked up where we left off over a beer in the pub uh, yesterday. Yeah. Um, and, and, and important for you to, to, to talk about sort of tw- well, 20, 2013 onwards where we picked up. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's just quite nice to carry on the story, really. Yeah. In the same manner. And um, I believe it's coming up next. Is that right, Graham? It is coming up next. I'm a bit shouty because we, we were struggling to hear each we other We were in a pub point. and it was full of uh, young lads. And uh, <laughs> they clearly had a bit too much to drink. But um, it was nice. It's quite liberating. I always feel quite good after doing that. Yeah. Uh, good. All right. Well, here Enjoy it is. Enjoy it. So, Brad, we had quite the response the last time we spoke about the effect that winning the tour had on you uh, back in 2012 and how it has affected your life since and how you've processed that and, and, and how, in many ways still, it's an, an ongoing process. So what we wanted to do today was, was pick up where we left off almost. And that's partly because I think in the, in the past few days for Eurosport, you've been looking back at old clips of you in yellow and that 2012 tour and you don't necessarily associate the man you are now with the man you see on screen there. No, and I don't think it's just the Tour de France. I think, I, I mean, the initial subject matter was kind of, um, life was never the same again. Um, and there's no negative slant on that. It's, it's a factual thing that, you know, life changes when you win the Tour de France, but not just the Tour de France, you know, when you become the first Brit, when you're part of a team that has a British world champion, when you're part of a team that has... Someone like Chris Froome, who went on to become one of the greatest tour riders of our generation. And then when you get a home Olympics 10 days later, and you end up winning that as well, it, it, was, it was, you know, life's never been the same since the success of 2012. But not, not as I say, not, not in a negative way, just, I think, not underestimating the impact or anything like that. I just don't think anyone could have anticipated the level of fame that we would have acquired from applying our trade and something we did every day in order to be successful and the level of celebrity and fame and notoriety that came with it you know it, it's 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 by no means to say that you know life was never the same again in, in, a, in a negative way but I suppose there were things that impacted negatively as part of the outcome of those things but that's true of most people in any walk of life I think by speaking about it most people, whatever walk of life they're in, whatever job they're in, whatever turn they take in their life that was unexpected, there are repercussions to that, good and bad. And it's only when you look back with hindsight that my life and my success and my you know, failures are, are applicable to anyone's walk of life and anyone's trade. Um, the circumstances are just different. It's, it's not better than anyone else's. It's not this, it's that. It's just lots of people can, can see similarities in their own life and where you know things happen in their life that events happen that are life-changing that you wouldn't have maybe anticipated the, the amount how life-changing they were and I, th- I think the response that we've had to that previous podcast speaks to that too you know so many people yeah. do see that they, they see a lot of similarities between uh, not necessarily what you went through but but the the feeling of how you had to deal with it too yeah but that that feeling is again just to reiterate it's not it's not a sob story and it's not um me complaining about it i have to say that because it's just um from my own perspective 
And it's not even what would I have done differently. It's just, I guess, me reliving it and dissecting it honestly to, to show that underneath we're all the same and, and no one's better than anyone else. And winning five Olympic golds or the Tour de France doesn't protect you from the reality of life, I guess. And I think it's something like that impacts on the people around you as well. And the perception of people around you changes and you become liked or disliked for how people perceive you. And I guess sometimes, or in most cases, or most people I know from a, from a famed walk of, walk of life, you know, certainly sport, the perception is actually quite different to the reality. So moving it on from that, from that seismic year, 2012, into 2013, and it was almost, um, I think you've sort of spoken about it before, as almost a rebuilding process for your career. Not initially, no. I think initially it was trying to pick up from where I left off yeah. on the 1st of August in 2012. And, and as I said last week, wanting to turn it off now yeah. and just get back to being that athlete I was the year before that, going back to training camps and things like that. And probably trying to manufacture that to the degree that and probably not accepting or learning how to deal with the fact that it had changed and there's a new set of challenges to deal with in order to achieve that. I probably tried to just go, right, I want that bit to stop now and I want to go back to this and I don't want any disruption. Mm. And um, I think that that was true of every aspect of it. And I probably, looking back now in hindsight, either didn't have the right help with that, but I can't blame anyone else. That starts with me, really. You know, I think we spoke before, Graham, didn't we, that you probably witnessed that firsthand when you came out to interview me just before the Giro in that how I just wanted to get on with my job, but I had a, a whole gaggle of interviews that I had to do. And instead of just embracing me, accepting they're here because you, you won the Tour de France and you're now going for the Giro and you're going to have that attention, I tried to shy away from it and see. I saw that as a problem and as an issue, which in hindsight added extra pressure to me and impacted on the way I was behaving. But we were saying you, in, you witnessed that firsthand, didn't you? I did. So I came out to interview in Lienz um, when you were wrecking some stages for the Giro del Trentino, what's now the Tour of the Alps, um, as, your, as your build up for, for the Giro that year. And everyone would say to me before I came out to meet you, uh, he's going to be difficult. He's not going to give you the time of day. Um, so when, when I originally say so this is in my old guys at, at, um, at Sport Magazine. So coming out I was, I, was, I was quite apprehensive about how it would go and hoping that I'll be able to come back with something that yeah. um, I could put in front of my editor and it would be it would be something that we could use and so you had found that day that roads were closed because of snow drift um, so you were very late back to the hotel yeah. and so I was sort of left sweating thinking is he going to show up at all yeah what sort of mood is he going to be in because he's had a, a rough day already is he going to be the character that everyone else tells me he's going to be and you couldn't have been even though it was late you trudged in your training gear you couldn't have given me more time yeah um and and we spoke for we spoke for quite a while over about all sorts of things yeah and it, it was it was far from what i was told to expect yeah but that just shows you that the the perception that i'd obviously built that i'd i'd been like that with enough people that I'd created a perception of what to expect from me and when I hear that you know like we was talking about last week is I feel really sorry for myself back then in the sense that you know I was 32 33 years of age and I stupidly saw the press and interviews like that as a chore mm. and 
rather than accepting that I had to do them as part of your status, I saw them as something I didn't want to do. And I'd quite often be quite petulant and, and have to, quite childlike in having to, having to do those. And, and I fought against it and I created problems for the people around me that was trying to organize those interviews. And I became difficult. And I realized now, looking back, that the only one who was really suffering out of the whole thing, because you had to do them at the end of the day, was you, Brad. And, um, and I can say, that's the change that, that's happened now. And I think, in being honest now, I think the sad thing is that people would think you're still like that. Mm. But I was like that, and it's, I, there's no one else to blame, really, for that. It's just, I, I, I was all, it was, it was a, ingrained in me from like, things I spoke about last week, that desperation to be different and individual, that I always saw the negative in people coming to do an interview that I was always on the defensive and then that defensive turned into the need to be shocking, contentious, maybe perceived to be a little bit arrogant. And rather than just making my life easier, I, I saw it like a chore and it, it's a shame that, that I, I, I was like that, but that, that was just that, con that sort of um, rebellious person in me that just couldn't be asked and I just wanted, I wanted to be left alone and can't I just train? No one was interested this time last year, so why are they all of a sudden interested now? Well, the reason they're interested now is because you're who you are. And, and it seems obvious looking back about that, but, you know, it just shows you that how messed up things can get from a simplicity point of view. And I'd pick and choose, you know, and I don't know why I'd pick and choose, but there was clearly something, when I first met you before we did the podcast, I said to you, you said I'd interviewed you a couple of times. And I said, don't tell me I was fucking horrible to you. And you said, no, actually, we're quite the opposite. And I, I thought, oh, thank God for that. Because I realized that I, I, could be, I could make other people's jobs quite difficult. And when I look back, I realized most people were, were trying to do their jobs. And their job was to interview the winner of the Tour de France, someone who'd become a household name in the UK, about his next challenges. And I couldn't see it from anyone else's point of view other than mine, my own. And... I wouldn't say I'm ashamed of myself or embarrassed. It's just, that's how bad it got. Um, but the, the good thing is that at least I can see that now. Part of the extra pressure on you was you were expected to be a spokesman for the Peloton because of what you'd done in 2012. Yeah. And of course, at the end of 20, 2012, we had Lance Armstrong finally confessing to yeah. Oprah Winfrey. Um, and so almost part of every single journalist's agenda when they interviewed you, would be to ask you about Lance as well. Mm. And so, so you say you, were on the, you felt like you were on the defensive a lot of the time. Not, not on the defensive. I think I, was, I felt the need to say what you're supposed to say. Yeah. And that mostly was from the comms team at Team Sky. Yeah. Because they had a key messaging thing. And obviously I'm, quite, I'm a person who speaks his, what I'm thinking. Not necessarily right all the time. But I think at that time, it was just, it was something that, again, I saw as like, like, why have I got to answer these questions? And probably felt the pressure to say what people wanted you to say and probably over-egged it. I mean, the reality is like, I was just trying to focus on my own job at that point. But I understand people wanted to hear comment from, but you know what people want, to, want you to say and what they want you to hear. And I, I just saw that as like, well, that's all you can say and and i think in doing that you're probably over-egging the emotion about it the reality is i probably just want to say look it's for the sport at least it's out now but this really hasn't 
other than it being the same sport and the same winner of the tour, etc. So, what can what can I say to? I mean, most people will sit up there and go, you know, we're advocates, but we but we were we were tested and all this. I mean, it's like, and that's not for one minute to condone what he did, but it had been built to such a point that there was enough evidence to suggest that that's what did go on, particularly with everyone else around the, the riders that were second and thirds, that it was only a matter of time, really, that the pressure was building that he did that. But it was kind of separate to us mm. in a different generation. The only a, a attachment to it was the fact that I went toe-to-toe -to -toe with him in 2009, and then it became apparent that that placing took off him and I got third. But... In my head, I'm forever fourth in the Tour de France because you miss out on that podium and all that. And it's just, it's, it's gone now. And it, it, it actually doesn't matter. But again, that was just an added pressure that I had to deal with on top of, I saw it as a pressure because, you know, there was, there was lines to get right. And there was interview after interview after interview at Keeps Sky Camp where the line of question was all Lance. Where does this leave the sport? All this sort of stuff. And people asking you, what are you going to do about it as well? Yeah, but what can I do about exactly. it? Exactly. Other than do what we were doing. Um, and there's no right answer. You know, it's not, it's not that I don't care or anything like that. It's just, it's, I don't think, the, the, the answer should be obvious. Um, and it's okay people saying, well, you should be more vocal or stand up for it. It's like, well, I think those riders are a lot more selfish than that in that, We've got enough to worry about. And that's not to diminish it or not pay attention to it, but that's what other people are there for. And maybe that's the wrong attitude to adopt, but that's the attitude I adopted at the time, is that, you know, I think whatever I say on it, I risk there being a backlash on it, but I see stuff from a human point of view as well. And some things I wasn't happy about have, that I said just to over-egg the point, you know, it's That time in cycling was but... This is all in, with cognitive bias. A lot of people got a lot of pleasure those years. People benefited a lot those years. But all it doesn't help is, is us now, and we're picking up the pieces and expecting to have you know, the answers to it. But we still haven't got the answers to it. Um, and it's an, still an open wound in the sport. But at that point in my life, I had far greater concerns than worrying about Maybe wrongly, I don't know. I'm sure people have different views on it. But being the voice for that whole, that whole scenario, I mean. Had your relationship with the team begun to change already into 2013? Coming out of 2012 into your, your new focus being the Giro d'Italia? Yeah, but I think um, Chris Froome was on a, on, a, on a roll from that year. He went straight, straight back to the drawing board. He clearly had the legs to win the Tour de France. He made that his goal the following year. I had a very disruptive winter, probably of my own making, um, and tried to come back to the drawing board and tried to replicate what we were doing the year before, but you, know, you dither around enough, through my, some, mostly through my own making, but you know, through massive change in life. But you do have a choice. It's okay saying, oh, my life changed. Like, you know, biggest freedom you have in your life is, is choice, and I, I chose to take up the opportunities that came along, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just the fame thing. I can't blame the fame thing. It's okay saying, I'll be a sports personality and all this, but I chose to go sports personality and get drunk, yeah? Um, whereas Froome went back to the drawing board and proved, you know, the, the team couldn't wait around for me to get my act together. And rightly so, you know, he won the Tour de France in dominant style later that year. 
I, I just had to get back to finding a balance in my life that was could take in all the things that had happened, find a good, happy medium, a way of training, a way of being happy in normal life. And um, it took some time. And then I did have a couple of injuries, like in the Giro and stuff. I actually got into good shape for the Giro. But psychologically, I, was, I wasn't in a good place. You know, it, it, it informed why my head fell off on descents in the rain and things like that. And, but physically, I basically rode on the front the whole team. So I tried to, Cataldo and that came off that team driver. So I said, you'd have gone faster on your own today, Brad. But it takes more than that to be a Grand Tour winner. And I capitulated mentally more than physically that tour. Well, people were accusing you of having the yips descending, weren't they? And that there was a lot more going what, on sorry? than being nervous of descending. Oh, yeah, I just, my, yeah, it's just mental, you know? I mean, that just shows that something as easy as that ruffled me to the degree where I couldn't even ride my bike properly. And it was, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I'm not embarrassed by it. It's just, I, I was a flawed character and that was... The ultimate, that was a, a shadow of the guy for a year before. What I was great at was training and getting myself into shape. And I did that Giro. But if my head's going to fall off about going down a hill in the rain, you know, I, I didn't have that mentally. And that, that is a bigger part of it. And that's why I always say people like Geraint Thomas and that uh, supersede me as bike riders in what he did in the tour last year. Went through pretty much the same thing as I did and came back and got second. It takes a lot more than that. And I was, I faltered on many, many occasions like that. I think Dave and a few of the guys, Dave Brailsford, summed it up quite well in, um, this sounds like me self-deprecating, although I'm not. This is self-assessment, you know? It's, um, we, we trained to win races, we trained for success. For me, probably more than any other rider, for whatever reason, probably because of my introvert personality and this and the other, I could never deal with success. It was a, a repeated pattern of behavior. You can't train for success and what it's gonna do for you. And that's not just success, trying to soak up your level of achievement. He's trying to soak up, probably because of how introvert I was, my self-consciousness was the success of what I perceived other people to see me as. So worrying too much about what people think all the time and staying in the UK and, and, and eventually becoming a household name as a cyclist in the UK. And that's not to blame that. That's you know, what did change, Brad. You know, they're not, But post-2012, I amplified that and was the, I was the maker of my own like I said last week, you know, um, and I see that now, but that's just the way I naturally deal, dealt with it at the time. And that's not necessarily the right way to deal with it, but you can't, you can only deal with things. People say when they look back at their own lives and they go, you know, when I went to uni, I should have probably concentrated more. All I did was got, get drunk for a couple of years and I ended up getting a 2-1. That was probably, you know what I mean? People, it's the same of any walk of life. That, that was just my way of dealing with something that, yeah, I probably didn't get any external help from anyone, but no one had really been in that position. And when you're 32, people expect you to, to know how to do, deal with that yourself. And, and I probably said things that made people think that I was doing that, but contradicted myself sometimes. So it was a, it was a, it was a flip side to it, really. But um, as I say, it, it's that 2013, right up to not getting selected for the tour, but I, I wasn't going to get selected because... I'd come out the Giro, my, I did burst a, um, a small sack in my knee. But I think that, again, that was from my own making, chopping and changing shoes. You know, when, when things aren't, you know, moving cleats and I ended up, I used to ride carbon shoes where I used to drill my own holes. And, and I think it was, I, I tried some gold shoes I'd had made, which had my name all over and stuff like that. And I tried them 
ridden them for a week and the cleats weren't in the right place or the moulds weren't the same as the previous. And I ended up damaging my knee, you know what I mean? So just trying to celebrate the success in a pair of shoes and, that, and rather than just getting on with it and, you know, the golden rule, never changing your shoes, just stick with them, you know, because, and that happened in the Giro and um, it suited me at the time to come home because... I was just crumbling every day. I was just, I was just embarrassing myself, really. And it was at that point I stopped, got my knee sorted out. I didn't get selected. I was never going to get selected for the tour. I would have made the dynamic of that team, you know, not right. The way I was psychologically, I, I know. Them riders and Chris going into that tour, they wouldn't have known what they were going to get from me. One minute I could have been up there doing the best job in the world. Next minute I could have climbed off. You know? That's the state of mind I was in that year. But did you feel like you could have been supported better by... Team Sky, by British Cycling, um, and by the people around you? No, not really. I mean, Dave Brailsford was very helpful on the phone and stuff. And the best help they gave me was bring me into the office and said, look, you're not going to get selected for the tour. You're not going well enough. And you need to start knuckling it down and give me a kick up the arse. To add to that, Dave would say, look, and if there's any, what, whatever you need, we'll give it to you, support-wise. And they were very supportive like that. But in a brutal sense, not molly-coddle me. You know, I did get my act together. I trained through the tour, watched it got back to doing what I did best, you know, going out on my own six, seven hour rides, filling up at garages, bottles and all that. And I got myself into a brilliant routine um, with a goal of trying to win the Tour of Britain just to get back. And Dave put that seed in my head. You know, Dave was like, come on, why don't you try and get back? Tour of Britain, world time trial, this, this ain't over yet. And I came back for the Tour of Poland, won the time trial in that, beat Cancellara, went to the Tour of Britain, won the Tour of Britain, went to the Worlds, got second at the World Championships. So I finished the season back as a, some sort of... Was it helpful to you in a way that Froome did win the tour? It was great. It was the best thing that happened. It was like, right, stop worrying about being this tour. Froome taking the mantle and the way he did it, the style he did it, was like, there you go, you know? And I think it was actually one year, exactly one year to the day I won the Olympic time trial, I won the time trial of the Tour of Poland. It, it was what it was. And, you know, the mantle had changed hands. And it was actually, I quite like that so my goal then through the winter was i want to do go back to enjoying racing i want to go and do paris roubaix and the classics with those guys and i want to try and make the tour team and i want to do a job for Froome and, and show the world and show him and show everyone else that i can give back that service to him and um but i understand that i i probably created enough uncertainty and this that and the other that Almost through no fault of your own as well, because there was always that question of, oh, who's the leader, who's the leader? No, I mean, I probably created that in terms of, like, you know, which Brad are we going to get? Um, so it's all right me saying, look, I mean, I'll do this, do that. But it's like, yeah, but what about when, um, you know, cobbles, if Chris punches? So I could completely understand from their point of view that I was, I, I'd become a little bit unreliable by that point. And that's what it was, you know, but it, yeah. So I got back 2014, as I say, I had a good winter, you know, the winter of the year before, it was completely different. I got back to basically, got what I wanted and I got that quietness, you know, that back to, you know, we've got a different winner of the tour now, we've got a different leader of Team Sky. And I actually quite liked that again. It was nice. And I came back and I wanted to have a crack at Paris-Roubaix. So that pressure of being our tour rider had been taken away from me and I quite liked that. But I'd probably created too much damage from the kind of up and down, unpredictable, you know, can't you know, dealing with like the fame bit this that and the other and that I, it was always going to be a challenge to break back into that tour team because there was enough riders that had secured their spot in order to do that job um, and, and it became a battle to try and do that um, so 
I went and did uh, Paris-Roubaix, I got ninth. I went and did the Tour of California, I won that. And I was in great shape. And I could have done a, a brilliant job at the Tour, not better than anyone else or someone else. But I was sort of, by that point, I would love to have gone back. I won the National Time Trial Championship to go and just almost pay back Chris Froome really and show the world that I can, I can defy this kind of, put to bed that conflict, I guess. But it was probably by then, I, I was always struggling from that point on to regain that confidence, that the stability that we, Brad's going to be okay and this, that and the other. So. so finding, where did you find that belief? What belief? The belief that you could still be world class on your day and, and still win, win a race you I wanted to go and win. Just getting back to what I did best and um, being on my own. Um, I, I suppose I had to hit rock bottom in yeah. order to climb again. And I was probably self-destructed externally to the point where it was rock bottom from a team point of view in the centre of the night to climb the ladder again. And I quite like being at the bottom and climbing up again. And that probably goes back to the story I told last week. And you kind of feel like you've got nothing to lose. No, not nothing to lose. Just I like being in the background. I was mm. never built to be a team leader. Mm. And that probably is true of the story I told last week in that once I'm up there... I could be the best team leader in the world, but I'm not vocal and I just lead by example. But if there's any doubt or you ruffle off that, I probably didn't fight enough at times like a Geraint would. I probably didn't take much to ruffle me and go straight back down again, mm. if that makes sense, sadly. And it's quite hard to admit that, but I was quite like that in certain situations, particularly in Team Sky. And so I just built up again from that bottom end. When we were talking the other day, you were talking, not on the pod, you were talking about how uh, you could draw a comparison between, just as a metaphor, between what you went through and what through, for example, someone who's been inside uh, has gone through. And yeah. how they'd never want to, the, the, the experience they've had would mean they'd never want to do it again. Yeah, I mean, obviously, some people might not like that. And that yeah, and that's not to take that lightly at all. No, but, it, it's but just I couldn't a, think of anything. I mean, that was just off the top of my head. I... I it might sound ridiculous to some people, but I was trying to draw the comparison. We were talking about, could, I, I couldn't imagine, I, I, sometimes I think I can't think how I did that. The only thing I could draw closer to, because is, is, I know a couple of people that have been in prison and stuff, is how, if you've been in prison for 10 years, say, reformed for 10 years, and learned your lesson, and it, and it, it, it served you well in that, my environment led me into crime and eventually into prison and I never want to go back there and I want to use my time there to help others and that, etc. Prison saved me, you quite often hear people say. And I've spoke to young offenders and things as well. And so it was the best thing that happened to me from that point of view. It was horrible. It was the worst years of my life. But the best thing that ever happened to me and... Somehow I survived it and got through it, and I don't know how, but 10 years on, I don't know how I got through that, and I can't ever imagine going back there. But being so institutionalized that there's a readjustment in life to get back to normal, and elite sport's a little bit like that, but I'm not comparing it to prison life or anything like that, but it, it, I was trying to think of something that was so institutionalized that when people commit crime, they quite often are unaware of the repercussions afterwards. There's no repercussions in sport when you, when you win something like that. But 
it's, they're not repercussions. It's just you're probably unaware or underestimate the change in life. And I think that's probably what I was trying to... And I couldn't even compare that to the army because that's, that's a completely different thing where you could get killed, you know? Um, sport's not like that, you know? I think sport feels like life and death sometimes, but it's not the be-all and end-all. That, that, that informs a marked change in you from that person, although the circumstances are very, very different, I have to say. 2013, that first part of 2013, and there being such an intense focus on you and what you were going to do next and how you were going to co- perform, uh, as, as, as well as the, your sort of celebrity status, how would you seek sort of refuge from that and, and comfort and somewhere where you could just go and be yourself and was that easy to do was that something you could you could even do even or was that something that that didn't come until much much later no there was nothing and I probably didn't actively seek that either you know I went back to Mallorca where I trained a lot <clears throat> at the same time and I trained in Mallorca in 2012 and no one went unnoticed almost I tried to go back there and replicate that and it was just a constant strain and especially in holidaymaker season. And I think it was, it was the stubbornness to keep doing the things you've always done, like, no, I just want to do this and I have a right to, rather than accept it and do something different. And I think that was more of it, is, is that denial of the change. And rather than change it and accept it, stubbornly try to push on through that like I had some sort of right to, you know? And I think that was a bit silly, really, but, you know. But also, I think that was also, there was also a desperation alongside that to nothing's going to change and, you know, I am going to still go to the supermarket and stuff and that was also a, a way of me not being like everyone else, you know, and that, so it wasn't just... A stubbornness from a point of view of like I'm still going to go and do this. It was more a desperation to, to to be not to be seen as someone like you know that it's changed you that mm. you go and live in Monaco and all this. It was like I suppose that was again that goes back to that worrying about what people think is that I never wanted to be seen as someone who thought he was something special and that it's like mm. well what are you doing in Tesco's? It's like wouldn't thought he'd see you in here. It's like I liked the fact I, I was probably concentrated a lot on the on wanting to be seen to just be normal still um because i didn't like the alternative which was um a bit up their own ass and you know who's he think he is kind of thing and all that and, and but i understand that the strain of trying to do that and sometimes the way i acted maybe to like we were saying about june probably gave that impression anyway mm. So it was it was a, it was a catch twenty two. You you sacrificed so, uh, an awful lot that I don't think any of us ever realised, apart from anyone who is who is particularly close to you uh, at the time, on both a personal level, a psychological level, and you've been through an awful lot. There's one positive that that you've you've mentioned before that you that you have drawn from it. So there there was a, a guy who messaged you and said, look, actually, you talking about all this stuff and you being able to articulate it now having, to a certain extent, processed it, you've saved my life. Um, so there are positives to oh, draw yeah, from it too. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, people's stories, you only get told these eight years on from talking about your own, mm. which goes back to what I said last week in that post, is like, talking about it, I mean, they've helped me, you know, people telling me their stories like that. So it's, it's 
probably what you know, especially for men. You know, there's a lot of talk about men opening up and mm. this and other. Somebody's got to open up at some point. It's not to say, oh, you know, I'm opening up about my depression. It's not about depression. Life can be depressive at times. You know, it depends how you define depression. Mine manifested in mania, being irrational, etc., etc. You know, it's um, the highs and lows of life, and people, everyone goes through them. It doesn't matter if you're a sportsman. It could be something as simple as not being invited to a drink with people you thought were your mates or something, you know, because you can't handle your drink or something. I don't know. But these are the challenges people have in their life all the time, constant, and it's uh, whatever level you are, whatever, whatever walk of life you're in, however successful you're deemed to have been, it's just nice to hear other people's sides and other people's stories. And I find it nice to hear other people's because it's 2020 also, and times have changed, and life is quite hard anyway. And it's um, people look to find happiness as if it's some sort of given at the end of the road. And I don't think, I think that stems from how you deal with situations and how you take on challenges in life. But not everyone can take deal with challenges in life in a rational way, how they see other people deal with them, how they want to do it, because they're prone to chemicals in the brain that are imbalanced that cause them to have breakdowns and stuff. Is there, is there anything that sticks out from that period that the people who were close to you and the people who were personally invested in your career, like, for example, Sean Yates, said to you? How would, how would they sort of pick you up or, or try and guide you at the time? I don't think anyone would, really. I think a lot of people were quite wary of me from some aspects because I was maybe, I think, it's very difficult for people to come up and say to you, you're right, you're not doing, look like you're not doing so well, you know, because a lot of the time people expect a backlash from you, you know, maybe, or, I, I don't know, it's a funny one, that. It's not anyone else's responsibility, really. I probably didn't have the right people around me as well, if I look back. Um, people that you thought were your friends and things like that, but, again, can't blame other people. It's just, it starts with you, really, and, you know, you know it, I think it's, it's just... The whole thing's great because I can see a marked change and I can talk about it. Because a lot of people refuse to believe that they were at fault for anything over things. And it's not about fault or blame. It's about accepting that sometimes people's, your behavior and repeated patterns of behavior are caused by something that you don't always recognize, but externally other people recognize. And I think that's that people constantly care for you that will always make exceptions for your behavior. And you hear it all the time, you know? He's like that because, um, because when he was growing up, his father was really cruel to him or something. And people's problems carry with them throughout their own life. It informs their adult life. It doesn't have to. You can change things. You know, you can... It's not always easy because people are traumatized and people don't deal with trauma. It gets buried and they bury it because it's a safety barrier. But lots of people, um, for one reason or another, accept that they somehow deserve to be treated the way they are sometimes by people around them and, and a lot of the time that's people projecting their own behavior onto someone someone quite vulnerable and saying that see it's always you that does this you know, so, so it's, it's a very tough one you've got to be very self-aware and, and honest with yourself and and that's not being deluded with yourself either that you, you kind of say you know i always get the blame it's always me and it and all this it's like it's a fine line fine balance you know and i don't sit, sit here preaching and telling people it's like I, I ain't got all the answers still you know just but when you look back through elite sport, elite sportsmen, are the way they are, because they're encouraged to be selfish and this, that, and the other, because you have to be, you know. But it's um, the, the difficulty comes when they retire, doesn't they? As we've seen, a lot of sportsmen struggle when they retire because there has to be a change. I don't think there's a lot of help out there for retired sportsmen, particularly in cycling. 
because there is an entitlement and there is a, a kind of entitlement that you, you have everything done for you your whole life and then all of a sudden you're left to your own devices. Well, like you said, it's, it's not a sob story, but that transformation for anybody be very, very difficult to deal with. But It's not even a transformation. I just think that person's always been in there. Yeah. It just, it grows further out. Um, and I think fundamentally it starts with never seeing yourself as anything bigger than you are. You know, people have success in every walk of life. But in sport, there is a, sometimes a tendency for people to think that their achievements are bigger than other people's. And, and that's not the case. You know, like, sportsmen are very privileged, very lucky that we have a platform and an audience to get the adulation. But it's so disproportionate to some people's success in life. Mm. Just being a parent, for example, is, is some people don't get the recognition not that they want it because it's not, you don't, it's not a duty, you don't want a medal, you don't want a medal for it. You're supposed to do that. But sometimes it's nice to be told that, you know, you, you've done all right, you have. And uh, it's, um, I just don't think we sort of praise people enough in, in our every walk of life, you know. But that's it, really. All right, thank you for being so open. And Why wouldn't I be, Graham? Well, I'm joking. <laughs> I say that all the time. I, I guess that it's a privilege. To, it's, it, is, it is a privilege for me and it's a privilege for, I think, the people listening well, I to... I just think a lot of it is showing your past vulnerability or your vulnerability, if you want to call it that. Vulnerability is sometimes perceived as like a, like a weakness. I think it's probably the greatest strength that man can possess in this day and age. And that's me growing up in a world where I thought masculinity was about strength and punching people. But if, if men are going to open up more and more... Not just men, women, of course, isn't exclusively women, but you know, showing vulnerability is, is, is probably the greatest strength you can possess. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thank you to our sponsor, Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. Thank you to Brad. Um, we can follow you on social media at... Sir Wigo. Sir Wigo. I should add that you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you also to our producer, Pete Burton. Podcast Pete Burton. <laughs> and finally, from me, Graham Wilgos, it's goodbye. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, share your thoughts, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Brad, enjoy your rest day. Yes. And look out for our preview of stage 16 of the tour as well as an exclusive interview from Orla Shanui you mentioned it earlier she spoke to Chris Froome at Toronto Adriatico and that's coming on tomorrow's rest day Bradley Wiggins show ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.